I'm Dave Monaco, the Altmeyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, in our first episode of the 2022 year, John Gola, Executive Director of the E.E. E. Ford Foundation, joined us. John helped us shift our reconnect and reset theme from thinking about connection to considering how life as we know it has or will be reset as we emerge from the pandemic. John's insights on independent schools provided much for us to consider. Today's episode, though, brings us closer to campus and home here at Parish Episcopal. It marks, in fact, the latest in our Parish Connection episodes, a nod to our 50th anniversary, which we are in the midst of celebrating. Like any healthy, dynamic organization, Parish's history has been marked by cycles of growth and evolution. Of these vision resets, however, none were bolder than the decision school leaders made around the year 2000 to expand Parish Day School. The sheer scope of the undertaking was stunning. In just a couple of years, led by my predecessor, Gloria Snyder, and an army of dedicated volunteer, community leaders, and courageous employees, Parish Day School became Parish Episcopal School. A new site four miles from Parrish's birth campus on Hillcrest Road was identified. Located on Sigma Road in Farmer's Branch, the Mobile Exxon International Research Station presented some 350,000 square feet of corporate space that school leaders felt could serve as an expanded parish program. The facility was purchased in 2001 and retrofitted within 10 months to support the nascent Parish Episcopal Middle School program from Parish's birth campus on Hillcrest Road. An academic program designed to serve pre-K through sixth grade students was expanded beginning in 2002 to serve first, seventh, and eighth grade students. And then in 2003, Parish's first upper school class of freshmen. By 2007, less than a decade after this incredibly ambitious expansion had begun, Parish Episcopal School celebrated the graduation of its first class. In its scope, speed, and audacity, Parrish's expansion story is nearly unparalleled among peer schools nationally. Indeed, it was the boldest of resets. As with any ambitious undertaking, there were trials, setbacks, and heroes, both seen and unseen. So, as we celebrate our 50th anniversary, our Parish Connection episodes in the next couple of months will invite some of the heroes of Parrish's grandest reset, to tell some of the stories about the birth of Parish Episcopal School. We will start with former trustees and alumni parents, Kevin Keith and Don Epperson. Kevin served as counsel to the school from 1994 to 2010, and in that role was a close confidant of Gloria Snyder. He also served a term as a trustee from 2003 to 2009, just after the expansion, following time on the school's endowment committee in 1997. Kevin's wife, Laura, is also an attorney and played an instrumental role in navigating the legal processes behind the purchase of the mobile facility. Kevin and Laura have four daughters, all of whom attended Parish Day. Two of the Keith girls are Parish Episcopal graduates, Lucy in the class of 08 and Whitney in the class of 10. The gymnasium at Hillcrest, Keith Gymnasium, is named for Kevin and Laura's daughter, Megan, who sadly passed away in 1998 after an illness. Don is in real estate development and brought critical expertise to the functionality and redesign of the mobile facility to support an academic program. As beginning in 2000, he helped with the zoning, acquisition, and planning for the Midway campus. He then served on the board of trustees from 2002 to 2007 and chaired the facilities committee. In 2007, Donnie became president of the Athletic Booster Club. Like Kevin, Don's spouse, Mary, was an invaluable asset to Parrish during and after the expansion, volunteering in innumerable ways to advance the interests of the school. Don and Mary's son, Taylor, graduated a lifer in the class of 2012. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Kevin and Don on the expansion of the Parrish program and campus. Podcast. So excited to start the new year. We were with John Gola, Executive Director of the EE Ford Foundation, and he helped us start thinking about resetting 
we talked so much in the fall about what it meant to reconnect as a community and in our lives, but John helped us think about how things may be different as we emerge from the pandemic and to think about that in the context of independent schools. But as we continue this 50th anniversary year at Parrish and consider momentous history of this school started so humbly on the campus at Spring Valley and Hillcrest in 1972 and moved so stupendously in the year 2000 to the Midway campus. It's in many ways unprecedented move in size and scope. We wanted to think about that reset and specifically the grade level and facility expansion that occurred beginning in 2002 and yielding the first upper school graduating class in 2007 and now just 15 years later a school that is well established here in the independent school market in Dallas. So with that introduction I went to two voices and historians of the school who I knew could provide some insights on what it was like in those challenging and exciting and hopeful and daunting days at the turn of the century as Parish Day and its leaders continued, uh, considered expansion to become Parish Episcopal. And I'm glad to have Kevin Keith and Don Epperson with us today. Kevin served as counsel of the school for nearly two decades from 1994 to 2010, was on the board 2003 to 2006. His wife, Laura, uh, who like Kevin is an attorney, also played an instrumental role in helping Parrish determine the legal processes and other extenuating circumstances behind the purchase of the Midway facility. And Kevin and his wife, Laura, had four daughters, all of whom attended Parrish Day, two of whom were graduates, Lucy in the class of 08 and Whitney in the class of 10. Don is a real estate development expert. He brought his keen eye to the functionality and redesign of the mobile facility beginning in 2000 to help with the zoning and acquisition and planning of the Midway campus served as a trustee member director of facilities committee from 2002 to 2007. And so he too had a wife who threw her full self into this work in Mary, tremendous asset to parish during and after the expansion. So these two, the Keiths and the Eppersons are legendary names in the parish past and present and great people to offer us insight on this exciting opportunity to expand the school from parish day to parish Episcopal. Kevin and Don, welcome. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. So let's go to, uh, let's go to some origin story. Kevin, let's start with you and tell us what brought you and Laura and the girls to parish in the first place. Well, Dave, I was the, uh, the product of the public school system. And it never occurred to me that my children would attend a private school or independent school, or that my family would become so involved in education the way that we did. Uh, as in a lot of families, and, and probably by default, my wife, Laura, was responsible for finding the school and the church for my family. And she had attended an Episcopal school in Galveston, where she was born. And her mother had been a teacher and, in fact, a principal of an Episcopal school in Lufkin, Texas, uh, St. Cyprian's. And so she had that background and appreciation of a faith-based education. And we ended up at Transfiguration Church and uh, at Parish Day School probably starting in uh, 1989 or 90. Yeah, I was trying to do the math on when you all would have started and it seemed late 80s would be would, would be about right, which is uh, which is remarkable um, in and of it in and of itself to think about the scope of your all's involvement with the community. Donnie, how about had, you? We had four or four daughters there at one time and, <laughs> and we had at least one daughter there for 20 consecutive years. <laughs> 22, 20 years is, is incredible. Donnie, how about you and Mary and Taylor? What, what, what's your old parish origin story? You know, we uh, lived in the neighborhood there and would drive by the beautiful campus, see the beautiful architecture, and especially the little playground right at the corner of Spring Valley and Hillcrest. And we go, you know, that's just a neat place, you know? So uh, again, Mary kind of ran the show. And, and uh, when Taylor was three years old in uh, 1996, 
went over and visited and you know within minutes we were sold and uh when he was in uh i guess three years old in pre-k and then you know he went all the way through and graduated so uh we just really had heard a lot of good things about it but uh in in our interview you know we could tell what a nurturing place it was and and the curriculum was so great and then the the bonus of the faith-based education uh was very attractive to us too so you all have, you know, quarter quarter century plus involvement here at Parish. There are other uh, listeners in in our parish group, uh, family group now that are tuning into the podcast who um, just don't have a, a sense of what life was like back there, like how Parish Day was positioned in the market. So, you know, late 80s into the mid 90s when you all got here, Donnie, like let's talk briefly about Parish Day before expansion and just try to provide our listeners some context of where parish day fit in the ecosystem and the expanse of uh the dallas market at that time i mean kevin do, do you do you recall what it was that made the school special to those people who were part of the community as as families you know i i think i do it, you know it's a matter of perspective but what we saw as parish day school strength was that it accommodated families who had children of different learning abilities. Uh, the goal at that time, uh, and I'm talking about like early mid eighties, uh, was, was not to enroll the best students, but instead to help each enrolled student to be the best that he or she could be and to maximize their, uh, you know, their abilities. It, you know, it was a relatively small community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when Gloria Schneider became head of school, we had 200 students. Uh, and that was in 1980. And, and it developed a community of parents who, of course, you know, cared about the education of their students, their children. But through all the volunteering and other schools activities that we did, uh, you you gained an appreciation uh, to care about what other families' children were doing and how they were progressing and and getting through um, the education uh, that was offered there. Uh, and the faculty and staff created, as as Don said, a very nurturing environment mm-hmm. of of women who were not only mm-hmm. dedicated educators but who genuinely loved children. And, you know, people I thought about recently, Ann Little and Diane Roberts, Joyce Thomas, B. Skinner, Mrs. Greenwood, Karen O'Rear, Vicki Eastland, and of course, Gloria Snyder. These were all women who were educators that genuinely you just knew they loved your child and all the children there. Yeah, it's well said. And, you know, we just finished in the fall as part of our Reconnect exercises, a series of uh, community meetings and asked everyone to create the lighthouse identities of parish to articulate those. And one was community that you mentioned, and it references a lot of your description of its nurturing, the nurturing sense that parish had. So even as we've gotten long, uh, larger, there's still the sense of intimacy, but still just as important though we are now a thriving college prep school, the word possibilities came up in this referred not just to the to the breadth of program that the institution provides, but the fact that um, the school sees each child as a possibility, regardless of background, learning ability, faith, uh, from wherever they come, you know, they're, they're seen as, as, a, as, as an individual of possibility will be put on a pathway to be their, their best selves. And this, this still resonates as a, as a descriptor with many of our families today even though we're a much larger school than the community of 200 or so that Glorious came to uh, in, 19, in 1980. Well, Donnie, like moving off the campus, then like let's go to the consumer psychology or mindset, right? So if that's what Parrish felt like to those that were here within it, you know, um, as I referenced earlier, in this broader ecosystem of independent schools, let's talk about, to the best you can recall, how Parish Day was viewed in the North Dallas marketplace of independent schools during its first couple of decades, you know, from 1972 into the 90s, uh, you drove past it. Um, but in your work affiliations or social affiliations, like, what did people think of Parish Day? How was it described? Was it known or was it not known? 
Um, and Kevin, we'll come back to you to see what you think about it after Donnie gives us some insights. Well, I think that in, in mine is pretty myopic view. In the early days, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. My wife did. But, uh, you know, I think it was, you know, if you asked around, you know, all the things we've already said about nurturing and stuff, people would uh, uh, discuss that. And then the fact that, and I'm glad you still have that mantra about, uh, you know, the community uh, and, um, you know, being involved. And uh, so uh, it wasn't uh, to, it wasn't stuck in tradition or some of the other schools. And so it seemed like there was lots of opportunity and a lot of freedom uh, there that you could embrace. And then uh, really, I think it was always, you know, you go through, through the sixth grade and then you got to figure out where you go from there. That was, you know, certainly it was a stepping stone. When we, get, when we joined, we didn't expect to stay there for, you know, the ninth year, whatever it is, years. And so um, uh, I, I think that it was just a little old school over there on Spring Valley is a nice place to go. Uh, but, you know, you don't think about uh, as a college preparatory school by any means, you know, yeah, and yeah. it was a stepping stone to the next place you go. But always, as long as I can remember, had a great uh, reputation as, you know, you, you need to go here. This is yeah. a great place. So well, well regarded in the in the community uh, writ large, if they if they, you know, uh, had, had some chance to come across the name, it was it was well thought of and, and seen as a as a stepping stone or preparatory school for the um, middle and upper school programs, be they public or private, where kids kids might have gone. Kevin, do you have any thoughts on where Parish Day fit in the broader context of uh, the, the, the North Dallas uh, consumer school market uh, from those days? Yeah, I agree with with uh, Don's observations. You know, initially it was a a nice little day school um, operated by the Episcopal Church. Um, it was a neighborhood school, and and right. part of the churches, the Church of the Transfiguration mission was to have this school that would attract students and families, and perhaps attract them to their congregation, mm -hmm. and and then. Once Gloria Snyder uh, became head of school, probably uh, by the mid, well, probably 1983 on, we started getting accredited. She mm -hmm. was uh, uh, adding sections to the mm -hmm. different classes. We were becoming larger uh, and fully accredited and then more of a preparatory school for schools like Hockaday mm -hmm. and St. Mark's, you know, the students would go on and, and be successful there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to talk about it as a neighborhood school. And, and uh, of course, I'm, I'm at the Hillcrest campus today as we record this. And, uh, you know, now our school serves, um, you know, 1,150 students or so from 85, 86 zip codes across the, across the Metroplex. But um, in those first 20 years, for sure, up into the early 90s, um, we were we were uh, a school that was probably much more uh, local in terms of the families uh, that it served. But all this, of course, leads to the topic of hand, which is parishes reset uh, on a lot aligned with the theme and and this uh, and this desire to expand. And, you know, what's remarkable just at the face of it is that you both describe a school that by all measure to those that attended here or those that looked at it externally, by all measure, it was a school that was doing wonderfully. You know, it was it was serving its families. It was loving and nurturing. It was in good relationship with the church that had helped to, to birth it. There was really no, on the face of it, compelling reason to undertake such an audacious expansion plan. Also, not to be forgotten is that Gloria, whose name's been referenced here several of several times, was not a young buck educator in 2000. In fact, he'd already had 22 years of stellar teaching career in the Richardson Public Schools, and by the time expansion was being pondered, another 20 years of headship. She was much closer to the conclusion of her career than to the beginning of it. I think an often overlooked fact of our expansion is the energy and verve and uh, that she brought to it given where she was in her career. So I'm wondering, Kevin, about the earliest conversations about expansion, 1997, 1998, the time when you were counseled with school with, with Gloria, 
when did they originate? With whom? And was there universal enthusiasm for the idea or spirited debate or both? What, what can you take us back to from those nascent days of pondering the expansion? You know, what I remember, Dave, is kind of in the mid-90s, uh, mm. there, there would be discussion among parents, by and large, uh, often prompted by the graduation of the sixth grade class. And, and that was kind of a, uh, you know, it was a celebratory moment, but it was also gut-wrenching. Uh, a lot of the, the kids, classmates, and families had been together for, you know, eight or nine years, starting a you know, three-year-old pre-K and uh, to suddenly have that community busted up and the kids scattered among private and, and public schools all over the Metroplex was just a really upsetting event. And the school would do a wonderful job of, of publishing reminders about the children that they'd become, you know, Mr. St. Mark's or the student at Hockaday with, you know, this and that and national merit scholars and athletic accomplishments. And uh, it was just this idea that, gosh, those are our kids. And uh, it's a shame we can't keep them. And so initially the discussions were about expanding to seventh and eighth grade, thinking that that was financially less risky, more mm -hmm. conservative. And that would solve the problems for people who wanted their children to go to Catholic high schools, you know, it would bridge that mm -hmm. seventh and eighth grade. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of us, it, it wouldn't solve our problem of what do you do after eighth grade? And then you face the same, uh, you know, catastrophic situation of, of having your community blown up and we still had three children at parish when our first graduated in 98 and so that really put laura and i on the team of we need to do something to address this uh, so that if children and a lot of children they, they couldn't get into the same type of educational community that right. they had enjoyed at parish right you, know, you, you had to test yeah uh, to get into these various uh independent schools and, uh, and they, they only had so many openings in their seventh grade classes for students. Yeah. And so a lot of children that you knew and you cared about just did not have an opportunity to continue to pursue the type of education that they and their families wanted them to. And, and that was um, disconcerting. So the market was, the market was speaking, but I, I, I then I guess the question becomes, how 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 much of a push did the did the leaders from board members and and Gloria like where what's what ultimately sold them or was there from the start uh, amongst the leaders of the school at the board and administrative level uh, a shared resolve to 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 jump into this do you do you remember a seminal moment where they said not well. I know the parents would love it, but we have to do this. Do, do, you do you remember a seminal moment or was it more of a gradual evolution to the decision? You know, what I look at, Dave, is in May of 1999, the board um, started a strategic plan that included one of the line items and it was to explore the feasibility of expansion. Mm -hmm. And Laura was actually... Uh, put in charge of that strategic plan and but it, it was a wide based task force of, of faculty and staff and board of trustee members and volunteers and that that looked into that expansion feasibility um, to go all the way through 12th grade and then as I recall it um, there was, you know, favorable uh, discussions in that task force and recommendation that, that this is something that the school could pursue and accomplish. And a lot of it came down to Gloria Snyder's vision that mm -hmm. this was something that, you know, that's kind of decision almost can't be made by a committee and it takes a leader. Right. And she, as I understand it, went into a board meeting 
I think after having a conversation with Ray Hunt, yeah, that that provided the, some financial security for uh, attempting this expansion, and she went in and announced to the board of trustees meeting that this was what the school was going to do. Yeah. So you put she put the committee together to come back and bring her the answer she probably had in her head from the from the get from the from the get go. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, by hook or crook, it gets to this point, Don, where this is this is going to happen, and this is about the time you know in two thousand where um, it goes from being conceptual to being actual. And and if this was going to happen, it was not going to happen over here on the Hillcrest campus where. Uh, it, it, the 10 acres were not going to sustain even a modestly expanded school, even if it were just a seventh and eighth grade program it would have been very difficult to uh, to do. So this uh, um, search for a facility or suitable space, I'm sure, was was quite the quite the puzzle. North Dallas was not nearly as developed quarter century ago as it is now, but still availability and affordability were huge issues. So Take us back to how you as you school leaders began to tackle the challenge of evaluating real estate and ultimately what forces sort of pulled you toward the mobile facility. Well, when I uh, first heard about it through my wife, Mary, was that, hey, they may be doing this uh, other campus you ought to call Gloria Snyder. So, you know, I did. And, and the way I remember it is that Sam Ware, one of the parents, had, had told um uh, her about this facility, you know, the Exxon, the mobile technology center. And, uh, and they actually went and looked at it. And then uh, pretty quickly, you know, uh, Tom Car Carter was chairman of the board. Uh, Tom Harrison was the finance guy. And Laura, uh, Kevin's wife, you know, was the attorney. And then, you know, we started kind of getting all together and I started treating it just like I do a normal real estate development project, you know, doing my due diligence and everything. And, um, and, and then we started working with Bill Green with Exxon, you know, who was the seller uh, for, and, uh, and, and started putting everything together. Uh, you know, pretty quickly, though, we, uh, you know, we, that, that group of people, we went and met with the city of Farmers Branch and said, hey, what do you think, you know? And uh, they said, well, first of all, you need this thing called a specific use permit, you know, so you can't just go do it, you know, which is a zoning process. And, uh, and, and then secondly, they were, you know, they've been used to getting taxes from Exxon and we're tax exempt. And, you know, long story short, the meeting didn't go too well and they didn't encourage us. And we're walking to the parking lot, you know, with Gloria and everybody, and she goes, well, I guess this isn't going to work. And so I piped up. I said, Gloria, this is what I do for a living. The answer is always no, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, you know, months later, we overcame a bunch of uh, negative stuff, but we finally uh, made our way in and uh, we're still here today. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, Kevin, do you recall um, uh, more investigation preceding Sam Ware coming forward with a recommendation to Gloria to check out the Exxon Exxon Mobil facility, or 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 do you do you remember it being a pretty quick pivot from we're going to do this to and oh by the way here's the facility we're going to go pursue pretty hard and see what happens. It was the latter. Uh, the yeah. First time I heard about a facility was the the mobile technology wow. center, and um, and things were moving pretty quickly at that point um, when I when I heard of it and. Uh, Laura was a, a commercial real estate attorney, and it, it just, we, at that time, everything seemed to come together. We had right. people who were extremely talented in various areas like Don and Laura, and uh, we had, you know, the, the kind of the tip of the spear of this project was uh, Tom Carter, who's in banking, and Laura and uh, Tom Harrison. Tom Harrison, yeah, did a lot of uh, the uh, legwork and, and brain work to get make this happen. But and Ray and Nancy and Hunt, who of course were on the who uh, Nancy and longtime uh, board member, board emerita now, and and I think Ray's ability to talk uh, to talk to to peers who uh, were at Exxon and Mobile at the time certainly facilitated it. But yeah, when you talk about a divine stroke of 
you know, capital asset luck and human resource luck, um, the school really walked into it, didn't it? I mean, it, all the obstacles aside that Donnie references and had to overcome with the team, just the, the pure notion of the school discussing and deciding to move forward with expansion and this facility <laughs> being, being available, um, just, you know, part of the astounding nature of this whole um, story, right? Um, particularly this facility and that a price that, that was affordable for the time, it was, you know, it designed as a learning facility and uh, by IMPay. And it, it has that feeling to it when you go in there that it is a, an educational learning facility. And you got the sense, we, we always talked about that it, it felt like it was built to be a school. It had a 10,000 square foot library. It had a cafeteria that would handle, you know, hundreds of, of people. Uh, it has raised floor science labs, um, you know, things that you would need as a, as a school. And even more importantly, you know, it was relatively close in and it had 18 additional landscaped acres where we were able to develop the athletic fields that an upper school has to have, mm -hmm. you know, for the football and the baseball and mm -hmm. softball. Mm -hmm. And uh, to have that in Dallas, even at that time, available to you, not only that facility, but that land was, I don't know, kind of a miracle. Truly. I mean, I think there's no real other way as a school of faith to, to see it than that. I mean, Donnie, you've walked into thousands of buildings in a career in real estate. Can you recall your first step into that facility and uh, understanding that it was uh, conceivably a place that uh, would become uh, Parish's expanded um, campus? What, what do you remember about that first walk in? Well, I will say even before that, you know, my company and many other real estate companies had looked at it for office and, and, and data centers and stuff. And because of its unique parts, you know, it, it just didn't work. So a lot of people didn't want to do it from a commercial standpoint. But yeah, when I first took the tour and, you know, we talked about what we could do and it was just, um, we said, this is perfect. I mean, it's more than perfect. Can we afford it? <laughs> Yeah, Kevin, do you remember walking in for the first time? It sounds like most people who walked in, you know, to Don's point were like, we can, th this facility will work. Do you, do you remember walking in and feeling anything other than that? I, I remember being impressed that it was nicer than any university I had attended. And uh, what an extraordinary facility it was. Um, and, and by that, before I went into it, I knew about a lot of the the aspects of it that, you know, mobile didn't anticipate being merged with Exxon. And so about a year before they put it up for sale, they had upgraded, renovated um, throughout and with, you know, fiber optic cable and, and uh, upgraded security systems and all of this that uh, it was an extraordinary facility for us to, to take on and they Exxon didn't have any use for for it and or for it in very little of the of the furnishings and so we also took on at that time about a million dollars of personal property desk conference room chairs and tables uh, the you know top of the grade uh, filing cabinets you know things that you'd need eventually for a school and they didn't even inventory that stuff. They just said, whatever's left is yours. And it, it was well over a million dollars of stuff we wouldn't have been able to afford ourselves, at least not for a long time. Hey, yeah, and they, as a side note, they had actually, uh, when Exxon took it over and shut it down, they had actually started building a building pad where the football field is today for another building. So, wow. you know. Yeah, that is a, that's a, that's that's a great that's a great nugget and and there are stories I'm sure some apocryphal but you know the building was vacated 1998 1999 somewhere in there it was it was vacant for a, a, at least a year maybe maybe more before the school purchased it but that you know it was very much gave the sense of a of a middle of the night move you know it, it, there were 
uh, desks and as, as Kevin was referencing, desks and chairs laid out in there as if the folks just <laughs> were there one day and, and left the next. And even when I got here in 2009, um, you know, in a, in a great portion of the Great Hall, the, the far west portion of it had not even been um, finished. And you could still find the chairs that Kevin's referring to and wall partitions and other such things that have been left behind, you know, in that in that space. You know, we mentioned, um, you know, Don did the um, just the zoning and ordinance elements that preceded how we were going to pay for it. And then that was determined with some help from the hunts and others to be able to execute the um, five million dollar purchase fee for the for the facility. But then, you know, it's one thing, again, to have this place, but then you're going to start school and you got to fill it. And you're going to start school in essentially less than a year because it was purchased in the fall of 2001 and, and classes for seventh and eighth grade began in there just, you know, 10 months later. So, you know, without unpacking all the details of, again, just the Herculean effort uh, that Gloria and her team of faculty and staff and the board leadership and other community volunteers put into this endeavor, I'm interested kind of in darkest moments, you know personally for you, a point that you recall when you were like, wow, we've bitten this off and I just don't know if we can do it. Did you, did you have such a moment? And if so, can you describe it to us? Kevin, you want to think back to, to yours? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it ever reaching a pinnacle of, mm -hmm. of, of depth. Um, there was kind of a constant pit in my stomach, just the overwhelming nature of all the moving parts that went into the expansion and then adding a grade each year and mm -hmm. adding faculty. And I know my work with Gloria as school council certainly increased in, the, in those years because we had so many more people and, and employees and, and uh, just issues that kept coming up. Um, there, you, you had this, and I served on the board from 2003 to 2009, mm -hmm. which got us into the, oh, the, the great recession. It was 2008, 2009. And, you know, right. we're, we're at a point then that, you know, there was a lot of, uh, donor fatigue and, uh, the, the, um, and then the economy for the country, if not the globe, was was going south. And we had a, a, a NOAA $5 million balloon note that was due to ExxonMobil coming up in 08 or 09. And you just, you know, those periods would be broken up with, with moments of exhilaration from the accomplishments that everybody was doing. And what helped me through a lot of it was being able to attend the board meetings and to see, you know, about 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. we expanded the board of trustees and opened it up to non parishioners mm. of the church. And we went from about 11 member board of trustees to up to a maximum of 30. Mm -hmm. And that brought a tremendous amount of talent and, and talented people to bear on all of these issues of real estate and finance mm -hmm. and everything that needed to be done. And, uh, you know, there was, I know a couple of times, Gloria and I would, after board meetings, we'd be standing in the dark in the uh, parking lot talking about, you know, wow, what, what do you think about that? And, uh, and we just decided that, you know, we were just going to get up tomorrow morning and do the very best we could the next morning. And that somehow these problems that, you know, we encountered along the way would, would be resolved mainly through the, the hard work of all the people that were pulling in the same direction mm. to make this a success. And, you know, it was not only Don Epperson who, you know, was our representative owner, um, with the contractor and the architects and updating us on the different phases of construction and where mm -hmm. we were doing on that. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Ozanis was a mm -hmm. top executive at Arthur Anderson was ha handling our financial reports for us. Uh, Carl and Nell Taylor mm -hmm. were uh, manning our um, K 
capital campaign mm -hmm. and uh, doing a tremendous job with that. And Marcy McLean would update us on, you know, as the director of admissions on, well, how are we doing? You know, if we build it, are they coming? Mm -hmm. And, and, and then we were having kids cherry picked by some of the other schools and, and, you know, we were just getting those constant reports and you just, you know, Alan Meyer, another mm -hmm. person who had tremendous leadership during that period of time. And you just knew somehow, some way we were going to get through this and, and end up with something that, and we would talk about, you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to come back here and see what we've, what we've accomplished. Cause I think mm -hmm. everybody appreciated we were doing something that was very important for the for the Dallas community mm -hmm. and and for the everyone involved. Yeah, and I would say nationally, um, nearly unprecedented in its scope and in the speed at which it occurred. I mean, you can find replication stories and certainly historical arcs of schools where mergers and expansions over time happen. But I know when I came in two thousand and eight to interview this sense of possibility that has been a through line of this conversation, be it about the uh, individual students who come to parish or the institution itself and the mindset of its stewards who are just like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but we're going to figure it out, was so palpable and has remained so during, you know, the time that I've been here, never, it's never been dissuaded or, 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 or sent astray in, in my sense that this community always feels like it can muster the resolve to, to do it. But I do recall those a couple of times you've told me about those stories of the of the post board meeting walks out to the to the parking lot where I'm sure an exhausted and overwhelmed Gloria would just find herself in tears wondering, you know, would the students come or would the finances work or whatever the issue of the moment would be just just proved to be so overwhelming. And so I, I appreciate your point about, you know, the, the cycle through the dark moments and the and the uplift of accomplishment and they just in the end probably balanced each other and balance each other out. Donnie, did you have a dark moment uh, story that you could recall and thinking back to those days where you just felt, nah, don't know we can get this, get this done? Well, I think, you know, pre-2002 was our most challenging time just to mm -hmm. see, are we going to get this deal closed? Are we going to get it zoned? And do we have a deal? And then, uh, you know, that first year from January 2002 to August, I mean, we had to design our improvements. I think about like 150,000 square feet worth of improvements and, and, and then uh, get it permitted and then get it built. And so, um, you know, that was uh, for me personally was you know, constantly the deal because we'd had a great a year. So then we had the next year, we, we had to do it again and the next year do it again. And so um, I, I think we did a great job though, really, in terms of, of leveraging, you know, keeping our costs down, using furniture that was designed for an office, but we use it for kids, you know, uh, making a space, hey, like the little black box theater, probably the worst <laughs> thing you could have. It, it started off as that's where we did uh, PE, you know, and, right. and stuff. So, I mean, we use spaces that today you don't use for what we did then, but uh, we made it work. And, um, but I do remember uh, he was talking about Marcy McLean, you know, in the summer, you know, would come and show us the numbers of potential enrollment. And then we'd look at the, the, the costs and, and, you know, of our financing and, you know, we just do the numbers and we go, oh boy. Every <laughs> year. Yeah. Every, every year was sort of. Every year. Out. Yeah. I mean, again, just to underscore a grade level per year from 2002 through 2007 with the first graduating class. So that's five years, each year a new addition, which generally meant each year um, a, a, new, a new set of capital enhancements or improvements that had to take place all the while managing a, a still very um, treacherous uh, enrollment uh, standing as people you know, were discerning about whether they would put their children into a, a, a school that was adding, uh, adding grade levels uh, and right on the cusp, as Kevin mentioned, of the, uh, of the um, 08, 09 uh, economic collapse. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of potential moments where it would have been understandable for the community of leaders to say, uh, we're in too deep. But once you started, you, you just had to go, right, and see it, see it through. And that's what you're and that's what you all did to your to, to a great benefit to our to our community. 
Well, so, Dave, that, that's yeah. really important because I, it was kind of unspoken at the time, but, you know, in 03, 04, 05, we, we had moved the third grade through eighth grade over to the new facility and we're adding grades. There wasn't going to be any going back. Uh, <laughs> it's too late. Putting those kids back at the Hillcrest campus wasn't an option. And so it was kind of a bet the company move that if this had failed, you know, the, the school was incorporated separately from the church. The church had always, you know, conditioned itself not to be taken down by the, uh, if the school failed. And if that, you know, the upper school had failed, the junior high, high school, the, the entire school probably would have gone under mm. uh, financially because, you know, I like to think that we would have found a, a, a another solution if, if if we hadn't been able to keep our payments and keep mm -hmm. the facility and, and so forth, but it was, it was unspoken that, you know, this, the entire school was at risk if we didn't make a success out of this. And, and that was part of what I think drove people to, to do what we were doing. Yeah, I mean, a $10 million cost to, to get into the facility. You mentioned the $5 million that was, you know, was, a, was the Hunt gift. And then the $5 million note that Donnie was referencing, so just huge financial investment up front. And then the additional expenses having to be uh, added from personnel and uh, the, the capital um, retrofitting of the facility. It was a constant um, burden of, of new pressures that were coming forward during that uh during that time. And I think our mindset has continued to stay startup and scrappy. Like, I don't know that we've um, evolved out of that at this point as much by uh, choice um, and, and culture as by necessity. But um, that definitely was the, was the feel um, of, the, of the community uh, in those early, early days of the expansion. So I guess in wrapping up, I had asked Donnie earlier uh, how Parish Day was viewed in the marketplace of North Dallas independent schools. And so here we sit um, two decades since Parish Episcopal School's birth and simultaneously 50 years since the founding of Parish Day. And I'm wondering how, how you think the school's expansion reset its reputation in the Dallas community, right? From what Donnie described as a local, admired, uh, cute and quaint community school, neighborhood school to what it is now? How, how, how do you see the expansion having, having changed that? So let's, let's kick it off with you, Kevin. Well, it's, it's a very different uh, institution than when my daughters uh, graduated. I mean, it's um, all for the better. Uh, I think it's viewed as, as kind of a world-class facility, not only for education, but for athletics, for, for the fine arts, um, that offers innovative education programs uh, for college preparatory uh, work. And the times I've taken tours of the facilities since uh, my children graduated and, and gained an understanding of all that's going on there, it, it's just a, a fascinating um, wonderful mm. educational institution, not only in this area, but respected around the country. Mm -hmm. Donnie? Well, you know, uh, it's amazed me how fast it's grown into prominence, you know, because we all have been in Dallas forever and for <laughs> decades, you had the big four or five, you know, that were the place to go to school. And now, you know, Parrish is right there with them. And they're constantly competing and at all levels, like you said, athletics, scholastics, arts, music. And it, that's so great to see that. And I, if you would ask me, you know, 15 years ago, I'd, I'd say, um, no, it'll, it'll always be number two, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, in terms of the way the world looks at it, not the way we look at it. And now it's number one. I mean, it is just, and it's great to hear uh, friends who are sending their children to school there and, and hearing what they like about it. And so uh, it's, it's great to have my name associated at some point with it and, and Mary's name. Uh, I'm so proud of what you've done, Dave, you know, just to bring it along to that next level. And it's been a lot of work, but mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, it is just so gratifying to know that you have played a little part 
and mm -hmm. something and, and 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 it's still a great school yeah the I, I don't i mean i've thought about this often had had uh, you school leaders been less bold in these in the scope of move even in the facility that you chose would the reputation of the school reset as quickly and as and as significantly as as it has in other words going from local day school neighborhood school to certainly a school that is known as uh, a peer of the more established independent schools in the market and i have and i have to say that the that the good fortune uh miracle whatever timing whatever you want to call it of finding that facility and um, these incredibly bright people um, coming together and figuring out how to do it was an accelerant and was a was a catalyst to it and in a different facility a bland corporate office space somewhere you know a, a hastily erected smaller campus on another plot here in north dallas that would have been identified that the um, upward trajectory of parish may have taken longer um, to unfold because you can't help but walk onto that campus and say, wow, just the facility is so big and so grand. You, you just can't help but say that when you walk in, it is terrifically unique and um, aesthetically beautiful and uh, and comes with a remarkable story so i think it i think the reset it, it provided was a was a significant benefit to you know what has become parish episcopal school to today so uh, pretty a pretty amazing story and we are blessed to have you and uh, uh you two among a myriad of other folks many mentioned in this and others uh, not mentioned but deeply appreciated as appreciated for all that uh, they've done as stewards of, of school who were celebrating during this 50th um, uh, anniversary, it is simply um, a gift for all of us to have been able to play a role in a story that is um, so, so incredible and, and so bold and, and daring and ultimately successful. Like that's a great legacy for all of us to have. And so I feel it just like you all do. So thanks for your time and thanks for your contributions. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Good to see you, Don. Good to see you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, we will consider the complicated and often mysterious world of college admissions. How have the events of the last two years from the Varsity Blues scandal to the pandemic reset how the college admissions process works, if at all? Joining me for this conversation will be Parrish's director of the Center for College and Life Planning, Sarah Kramer. We look forward to that conversation and to having you back for our next episode of the From My Angle podcast.